Welcome to Art Unleashed with me, Jonathan Monroe. Several weeks ago, I had the pleasure to chat to the artist, curator, and academic Lanfranco Eschetti. We talked online to discuss his artwork and what drives him to produce work which focuses on political themes and exploitation in our society. He discusses his personal experiences working in sales in London, making new work in Italy, and how he has seen firsthand in the US the tribalism from all sides of the political spectrum. As is customary for me to say, if you like this episode, please consider reviewing, sharing, or subscribing. Okay, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the podcast, I'm Franco. Uh, so I'm going to start with a question about a current project you're working on, and it's called Do Not Touch Me. So what is this project about? The project started in Italy during the first wave of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I had a bit of time on my hands. And as usual, I end up doing, doing works. And um, I decided in, in my career, when I look at my aesthetics, I have been going through, they're not exactly faces, but my work has some... Uh, family element into it um, and being Italian I guess that is easy um, it just perhaps comes uh, uh, comes naturally to it um, but this time is one of the few times in which I have made it so so evident and then my work evolves so the same artworks changes over time it becomes a performance it becomes a video there is this there is that there is the other and it gets very, very far away. So there was um, um, another artwork, for example, which was titled The Car Park, and it started in Istanbul with um, <clears throat> me observing people carrying on their shoulders heavy weights, so around 50 kilos, and they would distribute them a market and the piece was about exploitation of labor because these are very poor people and they sell their bodies like donkeys and they carry these weights around the market so carrying goods from one place to the other there is a broker that basically gives them the assign the assignments it keeps a percentage and they get a percentage, the lower part of the percentage. So here we're talking about the pittances of a dollar of a pound. Um, and that reminded me in Italy, I mean, you're talking about not very long ago, 70 years ago, you know, 1940s and 1950s, when women would carry on their heads on the fields, grain, produce and etc and they walk they would walk sometimes for miles carrying these baskets made weaved weaved baskets and uh, they would carry these products and so in that case again i used my family and i used my mom i used my sister and i used um senita who's a member of the family and she's from ethiopia um eritrea sorry <clears throat> um and um and that's something that um, I kept on doing. Um, and then the piece became a public performance in Southampton. So I started this within the intimacy of my own house. And when, when was this, sorry? 
um, the one that was done in Southampton. It was done with the Helen Sloan, and it was with the John Hansard Gallery. It was par part of the internet of cars, and uh, oh God, you know, I can't remember exactly the date. If you ask me dates of my works, uh, there you have me at a loss because I. It was in the last five years or so. Was it six, seven? It's uh, it's a little bit more. It's six or seven years ago. Okay. It's uh, it's around that it's around that period, and I really, I really, really enjoyed the work. I enjoyed working with Ellen Sloan. I think she's a great curator. Um, although you know. Um, the British establishment hasn't been very kind to her, um, and uh, um, and the work was was absolutely great. I had people standing in spots, and I was selling them because I wanted to save the British economy, and so I wanted to create new jobs, and I wanted to bring this process of slavery or neo-slavery or neo-serfdom into the United Kingdom. And so making money by selling people and carrying weights for other people. Uh, I think this is an interesting point uh, about <clears throat> slavery in the UK. I think it's, a, it's like a little secretive history of the UK and lots of Europe, in fact. We like to think of it as something that happened to the US and, and that side of the pond. But for the UK, it was a big industry still, and we had a massive part to play in it, didn't we, with our boats and the East India ships. Um, it, was that something you were interested in as well, as the history of slavery yes, in the UK? Uh, yes, but I, I was, there was one thing that, I was, that, I'm, uh, that I'm incredibly interested in, and is the fact that slavery um, <clears throat> now in the discourse is perceived as US slavery. Um, which is not true, and it didn't exist as a form of enslavement only of the white man towards um, African people, it existed also, or Chinese people, or any kind of nationality. What I'm trying to get at is that it existed even from white men, rich white men, towards white poor men. The process of enslavement is a form of financial slavery. And I had a piece, this was done in 2000, it was an internet piece, it was called The Slaves for Sale. And I did it while I was at MIT, you would go onto this internet site, which of course has disappeared now, and it's like some kind of, it's being sold for porn, I guess, uh, because Slaves for Sale sounds pretty, sounds pretty cool. Uh, <clears throat> And it was looking at the idea of how we are exploited in our dreams. So I had people selling their dreams. And so selling themselves for a week of slavery in exchange, in exchange for uh, um, <clears throat> their dream being realized. Um, and so there were people that were selling themselves as books. So they were commodifying themselves, becoming objects, which is what it does. I mean, slavery consists in making a person an object. And I had, before doing this piece, I had this performance that I did in New York in the 1990s, where I was sitting on a shelf in the house of a rich collector. And... Uh, and I remember that it was incredibly difficult to be an object. Um, because if you sit and you represent yourself as an object, people will treat you as an object. 
And the most difficult part uh, I was to, because I was sitting there for about 12 hours a day, not continuously. I would take breaks, you know, eat something, go to the bathroom, etc., stretch a bit, and then go back and sit down on this bloody shelf, um, like, you know, any kind of object. It was when he had a party, because he had a party, and, uh, and I was sitting there. And people, once they had acknowledged the fact that I was an object, they treated me as such. And they even had very private conversation in front of me as if I did not exist. And that was incredibly hurtful. Um, and so... Not be I, acknowledged, was it? for society to ignore you or is it yes lost? it was it, it was the fact that you became invisible and it's like you're like an object you're like something that it's if it is there or it is not there it doesn't have a consequence um it's invisible and it's an object without affection. It's not an object that you have a feeling towards. It's an object that it's an utilitarian thing that doesn't have any kind of um, affection, it doesn't suscitate, doesn't create in the viewer any kind of affection and therefore can be substituted at any time, any moment by someone else, by something else. And this is incredibly dramatic. Um, out of that, I did a piece years later for the Ant Festival, where I had men in underwear sitting in these red chairs, fanning themselves. And the idea was to realize your dream job. And again, playing with the idea of exploitation, abuse, and etc., etc. I put an ad, the title of the piece was A Dream Came Through. Um, and uh, in Italy, there is this expression, which is, uh, oh, how great it would be to sit in the sun and fun yourself, which is the epitome of uh, not doing anything all day. Um, it's just, you know, being there, spread on a chair, finding yourself and relaxing. Reality is that if you do full work, then it becomes a job. Your wrist starts aching after an hour, you need to do it, it becomes heavy, it becomes tiring, and it's really problematic and really, really annoying. And they were supposed to do it for eight hours shifts. Um, <clears throat> The performers were taken, I paid them more than the, um, you know, the wages that they were supposed to have, the regular, the minimum wage. I paid them more than the minimum wage, so that's why we had also people. And, uh, and I really became close to them. It was, it was a really nice, pleasant performance. But the thing that they also said, also because they were in underwear, that I had totally objectified them and they felt being object. And the interesting part was, I was speaking with somebody, she said to me, she said that I had totally succeeded in that because she was peeking through this underwear, or trying to peek through this underwear of the 1970s. Um, you know, at those briefs that men used to wear in the 1970s, which again, back, which again got back from Italy because they were, um, you know, I found them in a, in a storage down in the south because I wanted the original one. 
hands. And so there was this storage that used to belong to a shop and they still had these boxes covered with, you know, dust and whatever, these briefs. Because the 1970s was a moment in which there was a protest, there was a social consciousness, there, was, there were feminist movements, um, there were all different sorts of things that <clears throat> seemed to be bringing society towards a different kind of understanding um, of what does it mean to live together, what does it mean to participate, what does it mean to exist. Um, and, and that's why I wanted to use those particular briefs and I wanted to use those, um, um, you know, um, those white underwear. Um, <clears throat> It was, I had also tank tops. I took tank tops as well. And I was lucky because they were enough that I could cover different sizes. And, uh, and that came out of that piece, which I'm still interested in redoing. I would like to redo it in a, in a large square, um, focusing more on the process of exploitation because when I was there, what I could not do, it was to have a large number of people. And then I wanted to have people queuing so that if somebody for whatever reason gets fed up, you have somebody else that substitutes them immediately, right away, making their participation within the performance even more daunting because their so-called rebellion is absolutely useless because they have another object slash human being that takes their place. Um, and at the same time, what I wanted to do, which was inspired by my experience in the UK in, while I was working in marketing and where this, you know, <clears throat> I mean, the UK is a great country and I also think that it's a great country in which capitalism thrives on the poor, um, the abject exploitation of the poor. I was in this uh, media company, they were selling advertising and they used this labor process whereby you would go there, they would pay you for the first week. Then after the second week, after the first week, in the second week, you would be on commission. And so you were supposed to sell in order to, um, to get money. Um, the problem was that the leads that they were giving you, they were already picked over by the top management. So the top management would sell to leads that they had already picked over. They would leave you all the rest of it. It, sounds, is, like a, it sounds like a pyramid scheme, doesn't it? It is, it is a pyramid scheme. It is yeah. exactly that. And uh, so you would go there and uh, you would work, you would work eight hours, 10 hours, calling all of these CEOs of companies, you know, marketing directors, trying to get through secretaries and whatever. And then you would sell, let's say, a package of advertising for 20,000, 50,000, 10,000, 5,000, whatever. So the advertising would go on to, onto these giant screens of events that may or may not happen, that may or may not exist. Uh, so it was advertising on the hope that something would be perhaps there to audiences that may or may not be watching these giant screens. So what happened was that, I'll give you a couple of examples, 
people that were uh, intelligent, uh, they were immediately um, not hired. Um, people that had uh, education, they were not hired. Who were the people that were being hired? The great, the vast majority were immigrants or were poor, lower class Brits. Um, and so this gives you an idea of what kind of people were working there and what they, they were obliged in a way to work there. So um, then you would start working with the hope of making money because it's a scheme that exploits hope. Um, and if you didn't succeed, what would happen is that your savings would start dwindling. I see. So you weren't paid unless you received the commissions and, you know, you got the work. So you're just basically um, working for yourself, but not actually being paid. Yes. And then what happened was that uh, some people did not make money and there was quite a few. And because they did not make money, they would start getting into their whatever savings that they had. And some of them end up in, ended up in the streets. And I remember this guy, he was from Oman, and I lent him money because he had been sleeping rough for a week and he did not, he was coming to work without, uh, um, you know, by foot, walking. He was walking to work and he would work for an hour and a half to come in and an hour and a half to get back home. And, uh, and he didn't have money to eat. And at that point, it's not that I was navigating in money, but I had, you know, I had more money than he did because I was, I was pretty lucky. The question is, why did they hire me? Because I was very, very good at pretending to be an immigrant. Uh, <laughs> so with no culture, with nothing, you know, no education. You know, I was an immigrant. So they and misinterpreted your your intelligence because of your because of your I, actions, like because you look like an immigrant, so you are a, a, a different yes. class or something. Yes, yes. And for that reason, you are automatically, you know, suitable. And I remember one thing: we I applied. There was a moment in my career with my boyfriend that we were both without uh, without money and so we applied for jobs even menial jobs um, and so we applied to Pret-a-Porter uh, sorry <laughs> Pret-a-Porter pret we applied to Pret-a-Manger and uh, uh, both of us we were both called by this person in this space of about you know five minutes he finished his interview and then they called me. So it was, we were one after the other. And uh, while they interviewed him, he's American, of course, he, have, he speaks proper English, not like mine, not like my broken English. And, uh, um, and they asked him all different sorts of questions to which he replied in an intelligent manner and uh, he said that he asked them how far the, the place where he would go working would be in order to understand with buses and et cetera, et cetera, and whatever else, how to, 
and they said that they would let him know. So they did not like that he had said and had asked questions about working conditions because that's what he did. He asked the working conditions, what time he would have to go in the morning, what kind of ships he would have, and et cetera, et cetera, in order to go to work. So when they called me, I said, yes, I'm really happy to come and work. Oh, will you give me, um, um, you know, um, how, do you, how do you call it? I forgot um, the English word for it. You know, the clothes in order to go. Uniform. Or... To go uniform, yes, sorry. Uh, will you give me a uniform? Oh, I'm so very happy. You're so generous. And they did not understand that I was taking the face out of them. Okay. <laughs> yes, I can work any hour. I can come. And then I was even thickening my accent as much as I, as I could, uh, <laughs> because I don't know, you know, just to make sure that I could get across as somebody that was willing. Yes, I can come forward and I can do night shift for you. <laughs> and it was like groveling. <laughs> like the absolute, absolute, absolute groveling. And I remember then that she said at the end of the interview, this person who, of course, didn't understand the concept of sarcasm, at the end of the interview, she said to me, she said, yes, you can come. And we closed up. And my boyfriend looked at me, and since then we laugh about it, because we have this joke, oh, you're so generous, <laughs> because, <laughs> because it was just absolutely appalling. Appalling. Of course, I didn't go and work for Pella Manger because, you know, in the end, I went there, I just realized that I went there, I just realized the working condition was absolutely a nightmare. And I just said, okay, am I going to be doing this or am I going to try to, you know, to get a different job and etc. So I decided uh, to wait for a little bit longer and see if something better would come along. Um, and in fact, I ended up with a slightly better job, which was closer to home, and et cetera, et cetera, and all of that. Although, in all honesty, that was a nightmare as well, because you're still working in catering, you're still, you know, it's like, I don't know, I, you really need to, people expect you to be happy, you see what I mean? It's the optimism, you can achieve, and et cetera. I'm sorry, it's bullshit, it's bullshit. Yes. Because if you do a shift of eight hours, okay, working in a factory, you're working somewhere else, and etc., at the end, your brain is dead, and you're so freaking angry that, you know, you need to go somewhere to a psychanalyst or a psychiatrist, depending if you want to try, you know, by yourself or chemically, or you need to go somewhere else in order to try to let some steam off. Because you start realizing how unjust the system is and how stacked it is against people that are willing to try everything in order to succeed. So going back to the media corporation that I was telling you about, one of our colleagues, she won she was able to get um, $100,000 um, sorry, contract. And she was supposed to get around 18% uh, of that for her commission, which would make her, you know, relaxed because she would have a proper annual salary with one go. And that's why you did it. You did it because if you were able to, you know, 
stuck in yourself with you play one by of the rules comforts. isn't it you play by the rules you're supposed to yes. benefit from that in the system apparently yes and what happened was that she was fired so they fired her <laughs> and they did not pay the commission that the bosses got for themselves she came in order to try. Of course, there are no unions, there is no protection, there is nothing. And while at the same time they were selling, because every, every time somebody would, uh, you know, would sign a contract, they would start screaming and et cetera, pumping everyone up so that people would work with more alacrity, with more uh, speed and strength and passion in order to try to get themselves some money as well. Um, and uh, she did something. She came back to the office in order to speak with the bosses and etc. She didn't get anywhere and she spread parts, let's say parts of the office, the bathrooms and etc. with shit. She covered that, which effectively that was that's what it was. It was a ship pool um, within which people were trying to navigate. My contracts weren't too high. Um, so I would I was able to, you know, again, thanks to my good manners, a nice accent, a bit of culture, I had something that I could speak with people on the other side. I was a total moron. I remember I signed a contract because I know more McLuhan than the guy that was on the other side. And and we talked about it. And I remember the conversation, it was about the rare view mirror. Um, so, and I signed a contract and I got my percentages. They never tried to steal it from me, but once they said, because I signed a contract that was about 50,000, they said, oh, your leads is the same lead of your boss. You will have to divide it because you got it. So they were generous enough, let's say, to, um, to sort of, you know, at least towards me. I don't know exactly why. I think because they also understood that, People tend to fear me. I never understood why, but um, you know, jumping. It's like man bites dog, though, isn't it? You're like a, an attack dog. <laughs> yeah, there when is you that. sense, yeah, when you sense someone might abuse you, I think you attack first, and that's is that yeah. true? Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, and that's um, and that's why I'll tell you something that is funny about this. Um, so uh, basically they decided to give me 50%, they got 50%. After that, um, I realized that uh, it was better because I was ahead. I said, because before I put money in of my own, it's better that I leave and I left the job. Um, then the company failed and whatever, for whatever reasons. And it was all very, um, it was all, you know, in some ways incredibly sad incredibly incredibly sad because i remember the bosses coming in and ranting and raving about their you know new tv that they had paid ten thousand pounds and uh, you know I'm, I'm not even sure how to say this but let's try to um uh, to even and it's not that it wasn't if somebody you know, that is going to be listening to this, is going to be saying, okay, um, this is, uh, you know, white men exploiting poor immigrants and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're actually wrong, okay? Because uh, 
the people that were in charge of the company were from African descent. And, uh, and that's the point that I always try to make. Rich men, it doesn't matter race, it doesn't matter if they come from Mars, they're women, whatever. Rich people are rich because they exploit other people. Yeah. And the people in there, they had sort of a Stockholm syndrome. And I said, before, before I get into all of this, because you start kind of loving and understanding your poor boss, you know, and I know a little bit better than that as it just, fuck this. Um, you know, you owe me respect as a human being. You owe respect to the other people and not to put them in conditions in which their lives would falter. Um, Do you think it's the same? The, the system has built this idea of aspirational living, isn't it? Like you constantly yeah. aspire. And I think that's the system feels like it's starting to break down in that way because you can't look, the TVs don't cost 10,000. Like, what do you want to keep aspiring for? Um, I, I'm curious to know if people generally want certain things anymore. Do they want the white picket fence, the, the you know, the 1950s US? What, what is it people still want that they're aspiring to now as well? That's what they want. They want security. They want to be able to live. They want to be able to have that. But the problem is, I think more and more people start realizing that, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> they realize something, that it's not possible to have it with this system in which you exist and that is run by vulture capitalists. And hmm. um, there has to be some kind of uh, limit. There has to be some kind of uh, um, redistribution of wealth. That's the, the best way in which I can, I can put it. Um, there is also the understanding that you, there has to be the understanding that you cannot exploit and damage the environment, the society, and et cetera, et cetera. And then everyone else has to pick up the tab. Um, I remember Gordon Brown talking, we have all shared in the good times. And I was sitting again with my boyfriend and we were sitting on a chair, I remember these, uh, pinkish sofa chair that belongs to the rented accommodation that we had in London with windows that had not been changed from the Victorian era, uh, era, era and uh, with air that was coming through January, you know, uh, with the curtains and velvet that would flow, that would move freely, you know, and we were watching TV and I nudged him with my elbow and said to him, have you seen the good times? Or when Cameron came up with the idea or the great idea of big society, but big society for whom? You want me to work for you for free. What have you given me thus far? Thus far, you know, I have to be thankful to the British taxpayer that paid for my PhD education. Okay, my MA, it was paid by me and my parents. But my PhD was paid by the British taxpayers. And that's something that I'm incredibly grateful for and why I always feel indebted towards Britain. But it is a vestige, it is a remnant of a system that does not exist any longer. 
ore that is so small that has become almost irrelevant. And then we would we would go into talking about other stuff that perhaps is better not to not to enter. So maybe it'd be a good opportunity to go back to do not touch me, uh, where yeah. we started this initial part of the conversation. So um, there's so many things happening right now, and I mean the pandemic. Uh, I mean, just to go to what you said about the Gordon Brown thing uh, in March here or, or April, there was the whole furloughing scheme, which was the scheme where people would be paid for their wages, which has been happening across, you know, at least the West. And I'm I think in other places as well. Um, and there was this feeling that we maybe are in all this together because they're going to, you know, support everyone through this essentially so they don't get unemployment. And how long did it last exactly? I can see, I can see you on video and I can see you're having a fit. <laughs> so this is, this is it. This is what I want to kind of go back to maybe is like the, 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 the bullshit, the opportunity that they took there to feed the line again. And then the reality, which we're all starting to re come back around to, and we're going to be living it for the next 20 years, I think. Uh, the reality, I mean, you know, we have that, we are being pushed away in a certain sense from the virtual back into the reality and the virtual of idiotic narratives and spinning and etc and i'll give you a spinning for example i mean that they're doing it in the us and that's with trump and biden um and it's about oh biden was voted with the most votes ever okay yes fine that means it's an election where people voted the most ever and Trump is the president that was, was lost with the most votes ever. Yes, and the messaging is that Trump is the biggest loser, okay? You can interpret whatever you want. I'm not a fan of the man, okay? But there is a logic. I mean, we have to look at reality with logic beyond the spin. And there is a lot of spinning, and that's the piece that I'm working on, which is at the wash house. Um, and this is a piece of what does it mean that the dream, as you can see, I have always been working with issues of labor. I mean, it's a long, long time. Um, issues of labor and enslavement, the financial exploitation and et cetera. They are things that uh, I have always had um, a problem with, I guess. And I realized that the cultural wars are just a mask just a way to hide the real issue and the real issue is freaking money you need to give money to everybody i don't care i don't care that you are politically correct in your speech and then the reality is that i'm a discriminated individual that cannot achieve anything in his life because you have handicapped me or you have kneecapped me because you've broken my knees and you're asking me to run at the same speed like everybody else it's in actions isn't it of a, it's the actions Sorry. isn't it of the system you can't like just listen to the the like if you go to obama i think there's there's a People had this vision in, on the left specifically that that was a great time because he had, had this very eloquent speech and everything. But if you actually look at a lot of the actions and what was going on, nothing changed. He was the same thing as most of the people. Yes, nothing changed. Some things got worse. Look at what happened yeah. in Libya. You know, I always say that the foreign policy 
and you know, I got fuck for it as well. I say that the, I disagreed with the foreign policy and the um, economic policies of Obama for these reasons. The foreign policy, I thought, was an absolute disaster. And perhaps, you know, strangely enough, you know, if we look at how much that modern of Trump has done for foreign policy in the United States of America, for the United States of America, he has done perhaps better than Obama, if one could be, you know, fair. This is the problem with the conversation, isn't it, though? You can't talk about Trump in those terms, though, can you, without it getting washed away with all the right, all the crap that he did. And that's very confusing and very hard for people to take, isn't it? It is, it is. And it's also because, don't forget something, that's why, you know, there is also a fascism that belongs to the left. Um, there is an intolerance in the American left in particular. You have to be there in order to be able to experience it. Um, I, you know, Ocasio-Cortez came out now with the idea that, you know, people that worked for Trump should not be hired any longer in the administration during the democratic uh, uh, tenure, if there is going to be one, because we don't know yet. Um, and it's just, it's just absolutely crazy. You can't say anything like that, even if it happens, okay? Because it does happen, because some people will not want to work, some people will decide that, you know, but generally speaking, you know, there is some kind of pacification, there is some kind of truce that is called, and then you say, okay, perhaps I can work with that person, I can work with the other person, etc. There is nothing of all of that any longer. And that means to do a prescription list, which were the lists that the Romans would do when they would win elections by killing, taking the money of their adversaries, or having them paying dues, for whatever amount of time. Uh, this is absolutely nuts and tells you of how distorted the discourse in the United States of America is, but also generally around the world, because it becomes very, very difficult to be able to look at the problems in their complexity. So just to, um, just to clarify, Sorry, because not everyone will know this, that you, you lived in the US for, for yeah. a few years, didn't you? So you're not just taught, yeah, and during, I think you moved just at the beginning when Trump came to power, for example. So is that correct, I think, 2016? No, no I'm, uh, I moved in 2015. 2015, sorry. So you're talking, you're talking from a, a perspective as an outsider on the inside, though, aren't you? It's, you're yes. not looking from a, an international perspective, are you? You're no, looking very no. internally. And in, in, interestingly enough, I can tell you this about this whole thing. I was, I was talking about my piece at the workshops, and we were talking about the fact that this is, I want to make of this a community piece where the flag goes and moves across different communities and is washed and it is washed in whatever way people want. Okay, it can be washed with alcohol or they can do whatever they want. 
And then they can add a piece. They can add a piece of fabric to the flag, which is relevant to their own personal family history. So this is what the piece is going to be, it's going to become. Um, and it's trying to replace upon the dream, the reality, the history, the complexity of everything that is happening, that has happened and happens. But most importantly, the interpretation of what it means to exist without an ideal. Because the flag represents an ideal of something that we want to realize together. It is the identity of the future that is based on the present and the past. But here it is being transformed, and this is the fascistic element, into the representation of a past ideal that has to be reactualized today. That does not mean to learn from history. The reactualization of a past it has generated the worst fascistic monsters in the world. Trump wants to go back to the 1950s, okay? I'm not sure where the Democrats want to go. It will be something that it will be interesting to see and to understand. But I can give you, for example, Erdogan in Turkey. He wants to go back to the Ottoman Empire. And so much so, he speaks of neo-Ottomanism. And you can see your foreign policy and the chaos that has been creating all the same around. in the UK, isn't it? Brexit being one prime example of that is the rhetoric around um, the good old days, isn't it? What? Yes. What? I, I mean, there's so much going the on with this. Old, sorry, the good old <laughs> shitty days because they were shitty. I mean, yep. Downton Abbey. I loved it. I loved it, but not for a moment. I believed. Okay, not for a moment I believe that those servants were not abused, that there was the love from the higher classes. And even if there was a, such an exceptional family, okay, even if there was by any chance, still it is something that you gift me out of your own will and it's not my right to have and i want to have rights i don't want to have gifts this is the difference hmm. and the problem is they keep peddling these uh, you know uh, sweetened victorian era forgetting that Queen Victoria wasn't taking tea with the commoners. And it's time to end and start talking about Queen Victoria as the representation of colonial power across India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and across most of the world. I had enough of it. With death, wars, and etc., coming, you know, going with it. And there is, a, you know, sorry, what I found really hypocritical, it was the condemnation of adult work as a fascist, but nobody says that Queen Victoria was a fascist. I mean, they were operating with criteria they were that were of their own time. And so in order to look and understand them, you need to look at them and understand them with their own time. The piece that I told you, the book that I'm working on, that I told you, that is titled The Prostitutional Aesthetics, looks at something that I call Il culo della serva, the ass of the servant. The servant, male or female, then in Italy is characterized as a female because we have nouns that are male and female. So serva is a female. 
because you know you cannot speak publicly of il culo del servo but they were also male servants and their asses beat it if you need it were fucked by all in sundry in the family if they had any power over them and if they were any kind of clothes to good looking otherwise they would have put a bag or a basket or a pillow on their face in fact them anyway and i find this sorry i'm getting very very angry i find this incredibly 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 problematic because the discourse is very polished, it's very neat, it's very, oh, let's go back to somewhere nice. That wasn't. It was nice for a few. Yeah. That's why you want to go back there. For the majority, it was a misery. I have, uh, I want to, <laughs> I do want to press you on this slightly. Um, the anger. So um, I've known you quite some time and I've seen this quite regularly and I, I I find it empowering. I think it's very empowering to see you very passionate about something. But I'm curious to know, on a on more of a personal level, if we just take go back to you, um, where does that anger come from? Uh, obviously, you've had experiences, but there's something more to it than that. There's something inherent in your practice, in your artworks. The anger always comes through. I, um, you know, I wondered it myself. Um, and I can tell you this, I read Kafka when I was 13. I read Solzhenitsyn, I was 14. Um, 12, I was reading War and Peace. I have a sense of just and unjust, okay? And I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. I find life unjust. Mm -hmm. I find life within this system unjust. And what I find most unjust, most of all, is that there is not an attempt to have justice. I find a lot of talking, very little action. I find a lot of people feathering their nests while, you know, they're saying, yes, we are working for, you know, the greater good and etc etc and then they pick salaries of a hundred thousand pounds from charities um there is all different sorts of things that i find incredibly problematic and my anger is deep seated it's part of my character and i remember i had a quarrel uh, I was in Athens, it was at an art fair, I was presenting my work, it was called The Lady and the Revolutionary Parrot, um, which I guess I'm the parrot, um, and a German came to me and said that he found my work very violent. And I said to, to them at the end of the conversation, because we couldn't get to agree anything on anything, I said, I have a right to do violent artworks. I have a right to say what I think. Thank you very much. And then I say, scrap that because I don't have to fucking thank you. In a way, I, if you read, if anyone read, look back in anger, um, Orton, um, there was a conference that I wanted to do, an academic conference, I don't know when I'll do it, and etc. And it was look forward in anger. 
because the times that we will have to face, they are times of anger. And it's not just because the COVID. The COVID is a coincidence that will make these times even harsher, even harder. Um, and the peace, in a way, do not look at me, goes back to family values. All of a sudden, in the face of all of this, I'm going back to family um, in a more overt way. I'm going back to personal relationships. I'm going back to all of these things that actually sustain you. Um, the dream, I think, has ended. Um, and if it has not ended for everybody now, it will end abysmally in the spring if vaccines are not going to be there. But anyway, some of the damages are already some of the damages are already done. Has it exposed the unjust society within which we live? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it has exposed it for everybody. Certainly has made people financially poorer. Um, and anger, for me, I don't find it to be a negative sentiment. Uh, I find it to be a sentiment that is actually necessary. The inability to understand anger is the collapse of current Western society. The inability of understanding social justice will be the undoing of them. Um, this is what I think. I mean, when I said it was August of 2015, I said that Trump will win, and I was trying to explain to my academic colleagues and artists why, all of a sudden, of course, because of the reason black and white, all I'm frankly, you have become fascist. After he was elected, they came, because then I, bet, I started to bet dinners for them to remember what I was saying. After that, you know, of course, I didn't, I didn't ask them. It was gentlemen's bets, and I didn't ask them to pay them because, you know, I wasn't there to make money, but I was just in order to make them remember the things that I had said. Then they came to me and they said, how could you understand it? I said, because his speech was the same speech of Berlusconi, the same speech patterns of Erdogan, the same speech patterns of other people that appeal to popular anger and fear. And you could not imagine, and you should have imagined, that the crisis of 2008 had left millions of people on the sidewalk, stranded. How can you run, how can you expect to run a society with millions of people in poverty? And that's why Trump has not lost by a big margin. How do we bring people together do you think it's just you went back to the idea of family and closer so i i have a feeling that and i this i think there's a lot in what you're saying definitely in it, but I, I have a feeling there's a defeatist element to that yeah that my... of course there is because i believed in the grandson role of education i believed in the fine i'm saying i believed uh, one has to change and evolve. At this, at this point, Obama evolved. Imagine a Republican president that would have gone into the White House, okay, and said, I don't believe in gay rights. I'm evolving. The uproar 
that the left would have had. And that is just, that is just a perspective. It's not your personal evolution, darling. And I'm using darling in an offensive, sarcastic way. It is the fact that, these are, that either it is a human right or it isn't. And I hate concessions granted from, you know, the altitude of your magnanimity. And my reaction is, shove it up your ass. I had to spend 20,000 pounds for my husband to live with me in the UK. And then I had to spend another $15,000 for me to go and live with him there. I had to get myself in debt with friends and family in order to be able to do it. So I don't think many people will be aware of what you're referring to with that, because obviously now we have different laws, but do you want to just explain that a bit more? Well, when I arrived in the UK, of course, the laws were different. There, was, uh, there wasn't a marriage and there wasn't a civil partnership. There was simply what you would call a recognition from the mayor, Ken Livingston. And there was the fact, and that was, uh, was important, there was the fact that if you lived together for two years, I remember, I think it was two years, and you could prove it, and you could prove it in the UK, as a husband and wife, or as a husband and a husband, or wife and wife, as one would today say, but at the time it was as a husband and wife. So you need to share a bank account, you need to live under the same roof, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do the other. You could, you could ask from the home office to live together, and for your partner to live in the UK if he was a foreigner, okay? The problem was getting in the UK in the first place. And so in order to get into the UK for the first place, he had to enroll into school. That was the only option that he had because there were no, you know, there were no jobs, no one would give you a job and sponsor you for a visa and et cetera, et cetera. That was the only possibility that was there. And so, you needed to come over there, pay the fees as a foreign student and whatever, do your MA, so pay through the nose, and then after that, and I didn't calculate the cost of living into all of this, and basically at the end of it, at the end of the two years, you would get your MA and we would do the application to the home office, and that's exactly what we did. Because you had to find, you had to find a way around the system, didn't you? To, to, you had to, to make, find, I have found yeah. the ways around the system all my life. So, you know, and somebody that grew up in this way, that you always have to find ways around the system. I did not grow up, in, I was shocked when I was in Britain when the people tell you the state is your friend. You see what I mean? Yeah. Because I never had a state that was my friend. In Italy, the state is your enemy. You're born knowing in your bones, in your flesh, that the state is your enemy. The state is there to fuck you, and you have to find ways in order not to be fucked. <laughs> I think... What the fuck? Uh, what this find, thing. <laughs> again, there's the anger. <laughs> uh, it, what I find interesting 
to think about is it wasn't that long ago that those laws changed it's what 10 years i think in the uk where the civil part maybe 15 i can't remember exactly yeah but what i find interesting is that we think we're becoming more liberal and in some ways we clearly are but i do feel like a lot of it is slightly token and i think from my perspective it seems like and we'll see and i don't think i'm going to be wrong about this but exactly what you're saying is the fucking will continue won't it of everyone yeah, yeah. because you know because you're not gonna get you know finally you are there and etc you have these rights which is you know which is great but you still encounter problems you will still find problems you still have to be with like-minded individuals although i'm somebody that tends to be very open um, and so you know i tend to move between groups and classes and etc without any problems even ideological lines because i think you need actually to engage with other people and respect what they think do you think that's a quality of being an artist it's because you you have to negate so many different areas no it's not a, it's not a quality of being an artist i'll tell you what it is mm-hmm. it is a matriarchal quality and i want to give a shout out to glenda jackson I loved her speech, her eulogy for Margaret Thatcher. I absolutely loved it. In particular, I loved her definition of female, her her definition of woman. Woman values are matriarchal values. Female values are feminist values. And I distinguish profoundly between the two. Somebody told me, I was quarreling with somebody, and of course now I'm a crazy angry person, but you know, um, (laughs) I was having a discussion with somebody, a heated discussion with somebody, and uh, I said, because they, they said to me, you know, I have already my idea. Okay, fine, I said, if you have already your idea, why are you making me talk? And why are you being so pompous about it? I said, matriarchy is not the specular side of patriarchy. Matriarchy has a different value. And if patriarchy, because they say the store with matriarchy, you want to put women in charge. No, because women's values are naturally democratic, inclusive, open, and etc. is male that are centered around a strong pyramidal um, hierarchy. And and that's what we were arguing about. Anyway, this then becomes a long, long, long discussion to be had. But I, you know, between, because now there is this feminism coming up, um, and no, I don't, I don't recognize, I'm not, you know, you see men, oh, how cool, I'm a feminist. Dude, I was a feminist when you were not even born. And better than that, I was a matriarchalist, which is slightly better and slightly different. And so these are the values that I feel have been betrayed. And there is a point that I wanted to make, because we were talking about it. No, I don't believe any longer that it is possible to engage with people in the same way in which we could have done 20, 30, or 40 years ago. And that is because even the left has taken up 
some of the behavioral violent attitudes of the right in their dialogues. So they're no longer dialogues, they're monologues. And fun if you want to have a monologue. I've never, you know, I tried to belong in different ways. I tried to belong to the left and I was too critical for them because I would be looking at the problems and, you know, and rethinking them, analyzing them, and et cetera, and discussing, et cetera. I'm not somebody that can have blind faith. I wish. I wish God had sent me blind faith and I could believe whatever shit people told me. Unfortunately, that's not the case. I have a freaking reasoning mind and I need to reason about it. I need to discuss them. Sometimes I need to be wrong. I need to think about why I was wrong, what's right about it, what is that I'm trying to say, and et cetera. This sort of engagement doesn't exist any longer or exists with fewer and fewer people. And the public discourse has been one of trying to shut up the other, when instead it should be a discourse about the complexity of the problems and how we try to solve them. That's why politics, as it is, I find it absolutely disgusting. As much as I find it disgusting, supporters from one side and the other, unless they start the reasoning. And Gramsci talked about the value of education. I don't think that you can educate anybody any longer, not in the way in which people imagine. Universities do not work any longer, do not exist as places of education. They're there to make money. They're corporations. They're not different from the media corporation I was working for. They do exactly the same. They pass everybody as long as they freaking pay. Pay me and I'll pass. That's not education. You shouldn't be selling MAs to everyone, to all and sundry. And you have these schools. I mean, you know, what kind of teaching are they doing? If you see people coming out of there, they have not learned a thing different from what they already knew. They have the experience, particularly in the US, they have the wonderful experience of having fun, of going shopping. And God forbid you force them to try to write a 3,000 words essay that revolt against you because they're customers. I think we're discovering the same thing in the UK at the moment. We're a little bit behind the US. What's it like in Italy for the education system there? It's different. It's different. Italy has different problems. In Italy, there are different problems. Um, in Italy, there are different problems because the problem that Italy has is one of corruption within the education system. It has a problem of uh, um, technological advancement. They are behind. It has a problem in that it doesn't really provide access to everybody. Because if you are somebody that study outside of the university, so for example, university is, I'll give you an example, is in Turin, and you're studying from Sicily, okay, they will make your program larger because somehow, so you have one more book to read. Why? I'm already handicapped that I cannot follow the lectures. I'm studying by myself and et cetera, et cetera. I'm studying the program that you have given me. Why do you need to penalize me by having me reading one more book? It's not 50 pages or 500 pages, 600 pages. 
and making my life more difficult compared to other people that can actually pay the rent to come up to Turin and study there. That's the problem. That, yeah. for example, is in here, that you have in here, where it's again, it's an idea of class, where the class wants to control, you have to be present, we need to know who you are, and et cetera, et cetera. Why do you need to know who I am? What is important is that when, you know, I come up, because here we have what is called interrogation, which I love, I would love to put that back in. You know, you have a program of 1,000 pages, and I ask you three questions about those 1,000 pages. If you know them, fine. If you don't, you're flunked. I, I don't think I would survive very well in that system. <laughs> It's of very course. cutthroat. Of course, because it, it's very cutthroat. Um, just for time, more than anything. Um, I, do, I hate interrupting you because I think it, um, it's great when you get to think out loud and I think you're working through the conversation. Yeah. Um, so, so we don't go on forever. Uh, my next question is, uh, what are you working on now? And uh, what's your plans for the next six months or so? Uh, you, 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 I know you're working on some of these projects already. Uh, and, uh, you're at different points on them. So, so what's happening for you? For me, I have um, exhibitions coming up, which is, uh, which is great. And I also exhibitions where I don't need people. So I don't need people to attend. And I love this because I have a strange relationship with my audience. I say I don't have an audience um, in the sense. And I remember this, and this is a reaction to my education in the US when, uh, sorry, in the UK, when they were telling me, you need to think about your audience. I don't want to think about my audience. My audience is in the future. If I were to do artworks for today, they wouldn't be relevant for 15 years from now or 20 years from now. And actually, when people understand them 15 years later, I'm actually freaked out because, okay, I have an expiry date of 15 years. And instead, I want to have it much, much longer because that means that my topics are universally relevant. Um, so that's why I say that I don't work for an audience and I don't mind not to have an audience. Um, it's not what I do my artworks, uh, my artworks for. It's almost like a process of documentation of something or a series of reflections or something. So I have this project which is titled At the Wash House. And uh, I have another project which I'm working on and I'm doing a series of drawings and paintings at the moment, and that one is, hold on one second, that one is um, titled, What If What Is Is What It Is Not. No wonder that's a slight mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> it's hard to remember that. <laughs> and wrap your head around that, um, which basically comes from, I have always been uh, interested in the pre-Socratics. So I'm a really huge fan of Parmenides, and his analysis of reality. Um, so, so the project comes, uh, comes from that, and then it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a peace take on everything, on things that people take a little bit too seriously. Um, but there is a series of uh, paintings that go with it. Um, so strangely enough, it's a time in which I'm going back to things that appear or may appear more traditional, so family painting and etc. Um, but it's also a period of uh, not so much introspective, 
but preparation and preparing the artworks for things to come. So I had this piece was done in 2018, which is titled Globes, and it's about sex and power. And there is a gorgeous video with that. I have, I have other images that I'm working on and et cetera. So they will be on my website and you will see them, you know, presented in, in different manners and in different ways. There is an exhibition I need to do with Nîmes, you were there in Cyprus, They're if you lovely. remember them. And I, I hope one day to go back and, are, and spend some more time with them because they're just adorable. Yeah. <laughs> they are absolutely great. Yannis um, um, Kolakides and uh, Eleni, they are absolutely, Eleni Black, they are absolutely great. They are two artists and curators and they are people that they let you experiment, or at least they let me experiment. So we're thinking of doing a retrospective of some of my works, or some of my videos, and et cetera, the more recent one, the older one. I have a piece with sausages. Um, so, Your yeah. favorite subject, your other favorite subject. <laughs> other favorite subject. So, you know, there is, uh, there is several artworks and, I'm trying to do something which is, and I'm not even, you know, strongly forcing myself. I'm just trying to do something which is to have fun. Um, my artworks were artworks about my anger or social injustice and et cetera, but are also artworks that are sarcastic, poke fun, and uh, at times they're also lighthearted. So I'm trying to go back to that. So where I can mix the heaviness of things with the lightness and uh, with, uh, um, you know, with some contradictions as well. Because in the end, um, when I find people want to put everything in neat boxes and there is no such a thing, life, you cannot put life in a box. A life, it's its complexity and its contradictions and the inability of people to understand the contradiction, to understand the complexity is actually what makes this society for whatever reasons, it's media, it's lack of education, it's this, it's that, it's the other. Um, you know, unbearable. I think that's a, a, a great uh, ending to this podcast. So I'm looking forward to when we can physically meet again and also share work again and see your work. Uh, for I, I can pretend not to be there as your invisible audience, if you like. Well, actually, you can come to Italy and you can give me a hand <laughs> and uh, we can host you. We can still host people and uh, it would be great. It would be great to have you and et cetera. And we can, uh, you can sit as an audience. I can have an audience of one. I'm actually thinking, okay, people, I'm thinking of doing performances one-on-one. -on -one. So for one person. So keep, uh, keep that in mind. I will launch it soon. And so I will do private performances. <laughs> Oh, wait. <laughs> uh, well, the thank you. Private view. <laughs> well, thank you uh, for, for taking the time out today. And uh, I hope we can uh, maybe do another episode again. Thank you.